Welcome to In the Know, where we take a closer look at the issues of the day that you might not hear from the mainstream media. We talk with people who are in the know, people whose expertise gives a fresh outlook to the issues that are important to all of us. I'm your host, Jackie Gusta. As we go to air, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh is being accused of sexual assault by Dr. Christine Ford, a research psychologist during a party in the 1980s. Judge Kavanaugh claims his innocence and wants to expedite the hearing in order to, quote, clear my good name. Dr. Ford, in her effort to expose the assault by a man who might sit on the highest court in the land for a lifetime appointment, has had to leave her home due to death threats over her possible future testimony. All this will play out against the background of the Me Too movement, which has given a new voice to victims of sexual assault that might have otherwise remained silent. We have in the studio Anne Rodwell Lawton. She's an MSW and the Director of Education, Training and Outreach at the Women's Center of Greater Danbury, Connecticut. The Women's Center provides support services to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and individuals going through other major life transitions serving 13 towns in the greater Danbury, Connecticut area. Anne provides strategic direction for her department and believes that an informed community is a safer community and that conversations about violence need to be happening openly to create real change. The Women's Center's slogan is, we're here to talk about it which sends a powerful message to victims that they do not li need to live in silence and fear. So, Anne, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. How did this happen? I mean, one day we're making 77 cents on every dollar, and the next day we're taking names. Mm -hmm. What happened? How did the change occur? Well, I think the change has been happening gradually over time, but I think what really helped is having um, women in power, in the spotlight, in the media, um, bring this to light mm -hmm. and being taken seriously. And when that is done, that I think that really led the way for everyday women in everyday communities to come forward and to tell their truth too. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So it took a long time. I mean, this... Uh, the catalyst really was an Alyssa Milano, the actress, her mm -hmm. tweet talking about sexual assault. Yes. And she asked people, if you've experienced this, just hashtag me too. Mm -hmm. So she woke up the next morning, had tens of thousands of me too tweets. Mm -hmm. What does this say about our society? It says that sexual violence and sexual harassment is a pervasive systematic problem and that millions of individuals have been impacted by this and that we have to be taking this seriously. And in fact, over 6 million tweets have gone out uh, about Me Too. So millions and millions of people are being involved in this movement and in this conversation. Wow. Yeah. But look, I, you know, I want to bring up the generational divide mm -hmm. about Me Too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're a little younger than I am. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, I grew up just used to it. I remember when I was a young woman living and working in New York City, and I would think, well, how could I walk home to my apartment and not get grabbed as much? You know, which route should I take today where there's less sexual assault? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a status quo of me growing up. Um, how, what do young women think today? 
I think young feminists understand the work that first and second wave feminists have done to pave the way for the rights and the privileges that we currently have. You think? I hope so. I think so. Um, and I would say that as a feminist, I believe in women's truth and that all of our stories are different and our issues and the things we deal with on a daily basis are different depending on the different identities that we hold. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I think the issues that young feminists are bringing to the table about harassment in the workplace and making sure that this is talked about and that perpetrators are held accountable is really important. And yes, it's different from the concerns that feminists had 30 years ago. Right. And that's okay. Right. Because we're always evolving. That's right. Because mm -hmm. um, to give you a little history, when I walked in my first job where they took out taxes, you know, I got a real paycheck, mm -hmm. the... Um, all the women who came in, whether they had a degree or not, were made secretaries. And all the men were put on the fast track. Mm -hmm. And the women were told, you have to prove yourself if you want a real job with a real title. Wow. Now, yeah, you, you younger women now, you don't have to deal with that, do you? I think in certain industries and yes does that still happen absolutely but definitely not as pervasive as it as it was back in the day so what's the real problem in the workplace today with women what do they have to put up with that they shouldn't the what women um and men i think men have to be part of this conversation too but mm -hmm. for me too really it's been women's voices that we've been amplifying um, women have to deal with inappropriate behavior that makes them uncomfortable, which makes them not want to come to work, to be in a hostile environment, to well, feel like they're objectified. Well, there, there's been a lot of talk about, well, you know, some women are overblowing this or they're too sensitive. What do women really have to put up with? What's the line? I think it's important when we're framing this conversation to understand that sexual harassment is a continuum of behaviors. So whether it's um, being groped or being said that you have to do this sexual act to keep your job, or if you tell someone, you know, you're going to be fired, I would say that's more on the extreme end, but mm -hmm. it's also, you know, comments about a woman's body that are inappropriate that make her feel uncomfortable. I would say the line is any action that is repeated that is done to have power over someone mm -hmm. and to make them feel uncomfortable. Whether that's criminal or not, yeah. I think that should still be our line. And um, actually, the employment equal opportunity, the EEOC yes. came out with a study um, saying that part of sexual harassment training in the workplace can't just be focusing on those criminal sexual harassment behaviors, that we have to be talking about culture of respect and civility and those comments that are inappropriate and make people uncomfortable. So have you had a lot of women come in, say on, I hate to call it the, uh, the less severe end of harassment, but things like just getting a comment on your legs or what you're wearing, things like that, that can make you feel uncomfortable. Um, have you had a lot of women coming into your office and asking you to help them deal with that? Yes, we have. 
and we always encourage people to come forward. It's really common for victims to diminish what's happened to them and say, mm -hmm. well, it's not sexual assault. It's, it wasn't that harmful, but I'm still thinking about it and it's still impacting my day to day and I still feel uncomfortable with what's going on. We absolutely are people seeing people come forward and wanting to process what's happened to safety plan about how they can go to work and feel safe mm -hmm. in that working environment. And so we cannot diminish those um, victims who are coming forward and talking about that. Wow, you know what, I, I can say that I've experienced, I, I think that if we um, threw a stick in, any, in, in a Zumba class of women, that they would all say that they had that experience. Um, but why do we do this at women? Why do we say, well, it's not really that bad? You know, um, you know, maybe I could have not encouraged him. Maybe I could have covered up a little bit. Why do, why do we make excuses like that? I think it has to do with rape culture. And we have a culture where we are consistently always focusing on victims and their behavior and what they could have done. And we have to flip the conversation to talking about perpetrators and their behavior. So the big question now is how? That uh, we'd have to change a culture. And that is not uh, an easy, nor is it a quick thing to do. Yes, but I always like to remind people that we have changed culture and social norms. So ones that come to mind is smoking, right? 30, 40 years ago, smoking was okay in restaurants. It was really culturally acceptable. And now, not so much. That's true. Um, also, my my mom and grandparents have talked about car seats. Not car seats, um, seatbelts seat in, belts, in yeah. the car, right? Um, and the how, you know, people didn't use their seatbelts. It wasn't cool to do that. But now, you know, most individuals do and understand the safety behind it. We have changed social norms over time, and it is possible. It just sounds like a big thing. I'll, I'll give you an example is I live in New York City where I have mm -hmm. a long subway ride where I used to work in Manhattan. And as a professor, I was sitting with one of my students who was not a very evolved or aware gentleman himself. He used to, uh, to not to his knowledge at all, he was not aware, but he used to uh, be sexually, verbally harassing the girls in the class where they would complain to me. And I was mm -hmm. trying to explain it to him and say, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That's, and he was like, well, why not? I mean, everybody does it. So what that said to me is that we'd have to go into his neighborhood and change the attitudes of all those people that influenced that young man. And I'm not quite sure how we could do it. So in your office, what tactics are, do you have now to start that change? Well, we really believe in prevention education and um, working with the young folks of our community to create those changes in social norms from early on. So we work um, in all of the local school districts in the area, starting in pre-K all the way through 12th grade. Pre-K? Yes. Um, talking about respect and boundaries, which then translates into relationships as an adult, right? Yes. Um, and so... Part of that conversation is talking about social norms around gender and the objectification of women in middle schools, talking about the images that we see of women and men. What does that mean? Um, because those beliefs and ideas about how we are supposed to behave and what relationships look like in our society, those beliefs and attitudes lay the foundation 
for sexual violence to happen. So we can't just be talking about the behaviors. We have to be talking about these social norms and mm-hmm. attitudes that we have. Well, you know, okay, so I'm glad that you all are doing that, and I'm, I'm sure that's going on across the country. Yes. Um, what about the old people? Are they just hopeless? I mean, right now we have a 71-year-old president who uh, during the debates uh, called the only female candidate um, said that she was, I think he, he was numbering women by their looks. And I think he called her a four out of a 10. I mean, she, she had a good comeback. But um, um, what, a, what can we do if the leader of our country is judging women by their looks and using pejorative terms like, you know, I'm sure the audience is familiar with this. It became, you know, the P word that was, uh, uh, it was adopted by the Women's March. Uh, Things like that. What can we do with this generation that's out there now, and it's being led by someone who is is coining these terms and using these terms and, and giving this attitude that women are, um, you know, little kitties. Yes. Yeah, so first, my response to this would be the same, regardless of what side of the aisle our leader is on, um, and focusing on the behavior, not necessarily the politics behind it. Oh, sure. I think so, we took down a, a couple of Democrats too, right? <laughs> yes. Al Franken <laughs> gone. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. This Throw is impacting stick. both parties, um, and so I would say. Clearly, a message is being sent um, about how about beliefs about women and how women should be treated. And I think the media has been doing a good job of saying that this is unacceptable, that these aren't words that we should use to describe women. Um, I would say that what we can do is have these conversations in our day-to-day lives. Um, talk so it with starts, our, it's ground level. It's ground level. Talk to your children about the words that people are using and, and what they're seeing in the media and saying, but in this house, in this community, those words aren't okay. You know, we're not going to treat women or men in this way and objectify women in this way. Okay, that sounds great. What about, let's talk about the Aziz Ansari case. Yes. Right? Uh, a young woman went on a date with him, and she's 10 years, something like that, younger than him. He's a celebrity. She's not. Um, they texted each other for a week. They went out on a date. And uh, by reading that article, he really was pushing too hard. Mm-hmm. She ended up giving away too much of what she didn't want to give away. Mm-hmm. And she said on the cab ride home that she felt violated mm-hmm. and then wrote this article to uh, kind of clear the air about mm-hmm. this. So the big question is, was Aziz Asari being a jerk or a criminal? So that's a tough question. It is. Um, and there's been lots of conversation about this. Um, I think it could be both. I think we have to believe survivors. If someone says, I feel violated and what happened to me is not okay, let's believe them. And also... But wait, wait, let me play devil's advocate. Yeah. Um, If I was angry at my ex and I wanted to get back at him, I could say he raped me, he violated. If if I was the ex-wife of the president, I could write a book and say he raped me. There's something called revenge porn out there. 
Why should we always believe the survivor? We should always believe the survivor because, well, first, as an advocate, that's my role. I do believe in due process. Um, I can be for survivors' rights and justice for them while also saying that I don't want people to be falsely accused. Right? Both, of, both of those things can happen, but what's really important is to recognize that really is a myth that we have in society that victims are falsifying their assault. Um, we don't really see this with any other crimes. We don't have someone who comes forward and says, I was robbed. And as a society, we say, are you sure you were robbed? <laughs> Prove it to us. <laughs> I mean, we don't see that with other crimes. Um, and research shows us that the false accusation rate for rape and sexual assault is around 2 to 10%. Okay. And that is about the same false accusation rate for other crimes. So we do not see, data doesn't, data doesn't support the fact that sexual assault and rape have high false accusations. Okay. And so um, I think why we... Why we think that is happening, though, is because that's what the media is going to focus on. When there is a true false accusation and someone is accused and they did not commit that crime, of course we are going to be talking about it. Because we should be talking about it. We should. But we're not talking about when someone is accused and is convicted, right? That's not what the media is going to be focusing on. That's not as big of a story. There's not going to be as much hype around that. They're going to want to talk about when there are false accusations. Well... One of the things that you do is look for a pattern. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, if you remember Roy Moore, uh, he was running for the Senate down south, and he had uh, a number of accusers from you know young women, 14 years old, 12 years old, accusing him of when he was the district attorney down there, and he was in his 30s, of sexual assault. Um, what do you think of that? I mean, if there is a number of people accusing you, is that more proof? Is that enough proof? I think if multiple people are coming forward, then we have to be taking that seriously. Research does show that only a small percentage of men commit rape and sexual assault in our society. What percentage about? Um, so it depends. Uh, like 10%, I would say, um, actually commit these crimes, but it's those 10% that are repeatedly committing these crimes. They're mm -hmm. not being held accountable. Wow. And so we do know that sexual, um, that rapists and people who sexually assault others often do it to multiple individuals mm -hmm. until they are going to be held accountable, um, that we have to challenge that behavior. And so I think it's very telling if multiple people come forward about the same individual and that we have to be believing their story. Mm. All right, so we have that 10%. Yes. And those are the criminals. Those are actual, you know, hands-on assaulters. So that leaves 90% of the rest of society that perhaps isn't behaving so well. So what, what's your prediction for the future? Right now, women are still making less than men on the dollar. Right now, they're still putting up with verbal harassment. Sometimes, like, as you said, the groping in the workplace. And as that article came out about Aziz Ansari, uh, guys are still acting like jerks mm -hmm. on dates. So what's your prediction for the future? That is the status quo now. How long is it going to take until we all treat each other with respect? Oh, that's a very difficult question. 
But what's your, what's your take? I mean, what, what do you foresee for the future? Is it, can it really happen? I know you're working for it, but can it happen? I think it can. Um, but I think a really big piece of this is making sure that uh, the criminal justice system and the legal system also holds individuals accountable. Um, and so I would say in five to 10 years, I'm hoping that we will have more men engaged in these conversations. And I think what's really important is other men holding other men accountable. Mm. So in the break room, when there's a sexist comment made or a rape joke, right? Mm -hmm. Another man holding them accountable and saying, hey, I actually take offense to that. And that's not okay what you're saying. Wow. I think that's how we're going to make real change um, in making sure that both genders are having these conversations. So you're, you again are saying it's the foot soldiers on the ground that are going to win this war. Not them alone, but mm -hmm. they have to be part of it. They have to be part of it. Yes. You, you know, yesterday I was talking to a student who said, oh, I never hear men talking about things like that. And I, I was surprised. Is it, again, this generational divide with men, too, that the older men, as, you know, uh, our president, you know, he's a self-proclaimed, he said, he is a uh, old-fashioned playboy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, women are for fun and, you know, you know, part of the rat pack and let's go play golf kind of thing. Uh, but younger men, I, I think are more aware and more respectful, but I don't play video games with them. So I don't really know. I'm, you know, I don't hear their intimate conversations. I think young men, based on the work I've done in high schools and colleges in the area around these issues, I think younger men are aware that it's happening mm -hmm. and are more likely to acknowledge that it's happening and want to be involved. Um, I think there are still some barriers for men being involved in this movement, but I think um, they're aware and more open to having these conversations. But I will say at the Women's Center, in recent months, we've received so, so many requests to go to um, communities and organizations that we haven't worked with in the past to be talking about the Me Too movement and how this is impacting individuals in their day-to-day -day lives. So I'm really hopeful that we are engaging older men um, and other individuals who don't feel like this is their issue. Yeah. I think we're starting to cross over that line to realizing this is everyone's issue. Everyone's issue. Yes, because every single person, mm -hmm. I'm going to say this really confidently, every single person knows someone in their life who has been violated sexually. And I'll leave it on that. Anne, you're a terrific guest, and I hope you've really enlightened our audience about the Me Too movement today and that the movement keeps marching along. Yes. So thank you so much for being here. This has been In the Know, a conversation about the issues that affect our lives. In the Know is produced under the auspices of Western Connecticut State University. Come back and listen. There's a new show at the start and the middle of every month. I'm Jackie Gusta. Talk to you soon.